Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is episode number 8080 with John Ferreter. Follow him on Twitter at F-E-R-R-E-T-M-O-R-G-U-E. He is about as industry heavyweight as industry heavyweights get in my my game in the non-scripted or reality TV world. There's no one bigger. So I couldn't be happier to have him on the show today. You're you're really going to love this one. Thank you so much for being here. Please subscribe to the show in iTunes. Uh, I like to use Pocket Casts on Android or Apple. That is my favorite uh, podcasting app. It, uh, it's just great. Really easy to use, really versatile. And it's made by some Australians, which is nice. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You know where I am. And you can also uh, subscribe to the email list at osherginsberg.com where all of the episodes are available. Only the last 50 you can find in iTunes, but all the episodes are on osherginsberg.com. You can also email me, send Osher email at gmail.com. Thank you so much for all the love on Tara Reed's episode from last week. That was that was really nice to hear everybody enjoying that one. It's uh, what day is it today? It's Sunday. It's Sunday afternoon in Bondi Beach. It's a lovely day. I've had a lot of coffee and some lovely oatmeal that my girlfriend made this morning. Um, and yeah, speaking of email, thank you so much for everybody that emailed this week. It was really, it's always really nice. You know, I talk about my health a bit on this show because one day I thought, you know, fuck it, I should just tell you why I sat down and it kind of went from there. Um, so yeah, um, thanks to everybody that emailed and people who resonate with that. Uh, I'm all, of, I'm a big fan of normalizing what it is to live with a, with a condition that affects your mental capacity or mental illness or something that's kind of a little tricky with your mental health. I'm a big fan of normalizing that conversation. And, um, you know, my doctor told me this really funny thing this week. He said, we're playing chemical Jenga, you know, the game with the blocks that you pull the blocks out of. He says, uh, 
We're trying to remove as many meds as possible from the mix while maintaining balance, while, while trying not to let the tower topple. Uh, so it, we're just sort of cutting down on dosages, a couple of milligrams at a time here and there. But I'll tell you what's tough is once you've lived without the symptoms for a while, and you know I've, I've been on this regime of meds for about oh, nine months now, um, once you've lived without the symptoms for a while, as you, as you dial the dosages down a bit, you start to see old things returning. And it's kind of interesting, you know, because I'm now getting perspective of what my life was like, what I was living with every single day, so much chaos going on in my head. And I'm just learning to manage as it sort of comes back, in a, you know, being aware of it as it comes back helps me to, I guess, deal with it. And just understand what it is and go, oh, that's just that thing. That's my brain is different from other people's brains. And my brain, you know, does this with information. And I just have to recognize that. Whereas in the past, it was so much of my truth and so much of my reality. Does that make sense? I hope so. Anyway, I've been riding a lot as, you know, as you know, I like to ride my bicycle as often as I can here. And I'm in Sydney at the moment. I like to ride to work. I like to ride to meetings. I like to ride around. And um, if anyone has a solution for... Um, a showerless shower, I'll take it because turning up to meetings a bit stinky is something I don't want to do too much, but it happens every now and again. Um, I rode home through the through the rain the other night. It was great. Like I finished, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning or something or 12.45 we finished and it was raining and cold. My girlfriend, she had to start work early and she's texting me going, let me come pick you up. It's raining. I don't want you to ride in the rain. I'm like, it's going to be okay. Let me, I, I like riding in the rain. So I've got all my wet weather gear and, uh, you know, and that's, that's important. And the most important is I've got some waterproof, windproof thermal boot covers or shoe covers. And they are simply the greatest thing I've ever bought for my bicycle because I keep my feet warm and dry. It's so good. But even though she was concerned a bit for my safety, I, I don't know, there's something about riding through the rain. I feel like a goddamn Viking and it's awesome. Uh, there were some road closures though, because you know when you ride late at night, that's when they get a lot of roadworks done. Thankfully, you may think that roadworks during the day is a pain in your ass, but trust me, they do most of the roadwork at night around the central city of Sydney. So at night time, there's way more road closures and stuff like that, which I, I see quite a bit. So there was two road closures I dealt with, and what it meant with meant was that I had to drive ride my bicycle up Oxford Street. Now, for folks not from Sydney, Oxford Street was formerly the uh, gay nightclub capital of uh, this hemisphere that's kind of moved to the inner west a bit more in Sydney and it's Oxford Street's a lot straighter I guess than it ever used to be when I first moved to Sydney you could see a drag show at midnight in three or four different places um, there was no straight clubs at all uh, but now it's it's a very different scene but nonetheless it, it was raining and so I'm riding and Oxford Street's up a hill so as I'm riding up Oxford Street People are leaping out from between cars, trying to hail the cabs that are flying past behind me. So it was a very interesting uh, ride home. I was hyper alert, but seeing the kind of carnage at about, I think I got past Oxford Street by about 115, 120, just seeing the carnage, just, pe just people smashed, stumbling up the street and screaming at each other and blah, blah, blah. I don't miss it one bit. I don't miss it one bit. You know, I used to be out at that time of night trying to get into another club because that's where the party's going to be. It's going to have to, it's still there. We still got to go find it. No, I never found it. I kept looking, never found it. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't miss it one bit. But yeah, I got home and uh, my girlfriend had to buzz me in. And so she was up and she wanted to chat when I got in. But 
So I got home. Not only was I high from work, I was like super mega alert from, you know, riding home through rain and traffic. And I was like, so yeah, well, it was really good. It was really interesting tonight. This happened at work. She's like, she woke up to let me in. She's like, what the fuck's wrong with you? It was very funny. So uh, I guess to counteract that, I've been listening to a lot of interesting music this week. Um, this week, there's been a lot of Burt Bacharach and a lot of Astrid Gilberto, A-S-T-R-U-D Gilberto. She's a Brazilian singer, very most famously sang Girl from Ipanema, the big famous version of that song. But um, yeah, really been enjoying that because, you know, I find that as a nice, uh, what's the word? Not opposite, a nice con, oh man, my brain doesn't work sometimes. It helps me calm down. How does that sound? <laughs> so let me tell you about my guest today. This guy, man, John Ferreter is his name. In the non-scripted TV business or the reality television business, we call it non-scripted because it's a different name for it. There is simply no one bigger in the business side, the off-camera side of putting shows together and getting shows on the networks than John Ferreter. He's about as heavyweight as it gets. Um, he has packaged some of the biggest shows on TV, uh, the short version is that when a network wants a show, John would put it all together. So he would, he's a manager, right? So he would represent not only the uh, producer and the executive producer of the show, he would represent the director, he would represent the talent. So the network, or this is a simple version. This is not how it happens all the time, but say that people want the show to get made. They come to John. John goes, here are five people, boom. And the show comes together because, and he represents them all. So he packaged some of the biggest, biggest, biggest shows uh, in the States. He packaged uh, Biggest Loser in America. He packaged Weakest Link. He packaged Project Runway. Um, and as far as a manager, he's represented some of the biggest, biggest names in the business. Um, current and former clients include Ryan Seacrest, Piers Morgan, um, Dr. Drew, Larry King, Jeff Probst, Carson Daly, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Garth Brooks, Adam Carolla, Dick Clark. Um, he even represents Renee Barge. Remember Renee Barge? She's worked on Channel V. She now works on Extra. Like he put her on national US television and she's doing great. He is an incredible guy. For 18 years, he was senior vice president, worldwide head of non-scripted TV for the William Morris Agency. He then moved on to Octagon. Uh, so he and I worked together at at William Morris, full, full disclosure, he's done a lot for my career. We first worked together at the William Morris Agency. I'll, I come to this interview with bias. Um, but yeah, so he went to Octagon for five years. You hear him mention that he's just coming to the end of his time at Octagon because we did the interview while he was still there a few weeks back. But now he's just formed on his own. He started out his own new management firm called The Alternative, So, which I like things that do what they say on the box. Yeah. <laughs> so... While, while I do come to this interview with bias, I can't be more proud to bring it to you because it's really, really rare that you get wisdom, not just showbiz wisdom, but business wisdom, like the wisdom you're about to hear from someone who's used that wisdom for incredible high profile and continued success, which is always the best kind of people to hear that kind of stuff from. I really can't thank John enough. He's possibly the biggest, busiest, busiest man in Hollywood. Uh, in his office is when we, where we did the interview. We sat down at his beautiful desk. Uh, there's photos of, you know, you name it. He's got photos of him. I mentioned in the interview, but he's got a photo of him jamming with Paul McCartney above his desk. Eh, 
pretty awesome. There's guitars everywhere as well. He talk, He's a musician. We talk about that. He's a very busy man. You hear him ignore his phone about twice a minute for me. Yeah. He did, he did have to take two calls while we did the interview. And both of them very interesting. But one of them, he allowed me to ask him about afterwards. And that was fascinating because we got to hear just a little bit of what he has to do during his day. So even if, like I said, even if you're not in show business, what John's got to share with you here is honestly, is pretty much the lessons that I learned very painfully in the first 10 years of my career, but condensed into like 45 minutes. It's pretty awesome. So let him know you heard him here. Ferret Morg, F-E-R-R-E-T-M-O-R-G-U-E. John, what have you that is what kind of Twitter handle is that, John? Anyway, let him know you heard him here on Twitter. Uh, he's he engages people on Twitter quite a bit, so he's quite chatty there. So come with me now to the Pacific Design Center in West Hollywood on the corner of Melrose and San Vicente, up the lift, seventh floor, first office on the left, for a priceless hour with John Ferreter. All right, I'm rolling. How are you, John? I'm doing great today. It's always always good to see you. Always good to see you. Can I put this on your beautiful desk? You certainly can, yeah. That's why it's there. Spilling coffee everywhere. Um, It's great to be here in your office, and especially that you've got the Minogue sisters on your wall. I know. Danny is so special. Yeah. I I only met Kylie once, and it was years and years ago through uh, my old client, Sophie Formica. I mean, mm. literally years and years ago. Yeah. And she was a sweetheart. But, well, as you know, she's a superstar in my country. She, both of them are. Both of them are. But, mate, I'm, I'm so grateful you could do this. I, I really, really am. By the time people hear this, I would have done the intro because it would have taken the whole hour to <laughs> – if I were to do the intro now, I would have lost all the time I have with you. It's okay. Um, how are you? you? You said you're good today? Yeah, I, I'm actually really good today. What are you jazzed about today? What is it? God, you know, a lot of stuff. It's um, it, I was I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and we were talking about uh, dream jobs, and I said to him, you know, when when you finally find your dream job, dream bigger. So, it's about dreaming bigger right now. Wow. So that's that was the conversation we had, and it was all about optimism, yeah. not about anything negative. It was all about finding the positive in all we do, and never being afraid to stretch. And kind of go for your dreams, and if you start to live your dreams, dream, dream more. I did some, uh, I did some homework as I do when I uh, when I interview people, and I, I don't know how true it is, but I read that we came into the business in a similar way through radio. Is that true? Yes, my first, my first real job was uh, in in the in the business in seventh or eighth grade. I started writing a column for a newspaper up in uh, Lake Tahoe, kind of covering the schools and sports and stuff. And then through most of my high school years, I was a stringer for a thing called the Monterey Peninsula Herald. So I wrote sports stories about all the sports games up there. And that's how I made a lot of my money for college. Somewhere along the line, and you know, I have the, uh, the Brian Williams memory of this, we started doing a radio show that we would tape and we would give to uh, local stations. And I think we gave it to KIDD in Monterey. We may have given it to KRML. You know, we put together a little 15-minute telecast and talk about what was happening at our school and around the Monterey Peninsula. And I loved radio. And I remember we got involved in starting a radio station, which I just uh, visited a couple weeks ago, called KSPB. And it's still in existence at my old high school. They've done an amazing job with it. And um, I just got really active in radio. Got my radio broadcast license. 
worked through college at a non-commercial and a commercial station, loved everything about radio. And then I started putting people on the air when I became program director who were so much better than I was at radio <clears throat> that I literally went, I need to kind of retire my uh, professional radio career and start to do something else. I actually realized there are people that are just so phenomenal. You, for example, Ryan, who I've worked with, uh, Dr. Drew, Carson Daly. There, you know, a lot of people are just so good at what they do on radio that I'm just in awe. There's something about radio, though, that you are for the hours that you're on air. You are the you are the general manager, chief engineer, program director, music director, accounts head of the station, executive you, you, producer of everything. What did you learn about? What did you learn in your time in radio that you still use today? Um, what's funny, I, when I became a representative and I was at William Morris, I tried to sign big stars and very few would return my call because they didn't know who I was. They knew who the the William Morris agency was, but they didn't know me. So what I did is I went and I signed every radio DJ I could find because I understood that I could promise them TV and they all wanted TV, but I knew if they were successful at radio, they had an incredible work ethic in radio. You're willing to work for no money, for eight hours, 10 hours at a time, and nobody sees you. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. (laughs) So my pitch was, hey, it's a half hour or hour daily show on TV. You're going to get paid and people are going to see you. And I learned early on, metaphorically, that TVs like cocaine to radio personalities, they'll do whatever they can to get as much of it as they can. Wait, they pay me? I only have to work a half hour? And they're going to see me? I'm in. So we use that as a pitch. What I really learned about radio is to be successful in radio, you have to have a ridiculous work ethic. So the people who are successful in radio are hard workers. And in some cases, I believe they work harder than the TV personalities. I would, I would agree with you. Yeah. The, the, the people I know who've come to television through the path of radio have, and this is just in my experience, I'm sure there's other people that have this, but in my experience, they have such a great understanding not only of how the music or the content relates to the listener, but also how the, how the business of it works, how the sales, how the, you know, money's got to, someone's got to pay the checks, you know, yeah. like how that, how that all works and keeping clients happy. Well, because it, there's instant feedback on it. Yeah. If you yep. miss Bob's chainsaws, he's going to call and say, why didn't you play my cart, man? Correct. I had my whole family ready. I was supposed to hear that in the last 10 minutes. Where is it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's the greatest focus group in the world is when you're out there because people will call and now it's, you know, between Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and all these different things, people will get right back to you on stuff and they'll let you know. Yeah. I like it. I don't like it. We also uh, had a similarity in that we came through playing music. You were far more successful than I was. (laughs) You toured the country, released records, put out videos, uh, but you toured around as a, as a touring musician for, for quite a while. For a while. Yeah. Off off and on. I like to say I was part of the band that never made it. Um, We did everything that you're supposed to do. We just didn't get rich at it. So the so, same so, 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 so was my story, but um, eventually, I mean, I know why I eventually stopped, but what was the moment when you went, uh, was it a similar thing to what happened in radio where you went, oh, there's better, better people in this than me? Or why did you, because some guys just chase that until the cows come home. I think there were a couple of things that came in, that came into play. There was a moment when I really had a, a come to Jesus and that's when my band was good. I was, I, I've played off and on with two bands for my entire life. One was called The Stingrays, and we did uh, we did a single, and we did two re- two records, and we did these in the '80s, and we played dates with REM and the Bangles and Guns N' Roses and stuff like that. We had, it was great playing with some of my best friends. 
we wrote all of our songs. We had a great time and did some videos. And you did all the things that, that you want to be able to say you did as a band. And I think when we were at our best, there was a band that opened for us at this show. And uh, they showed up at the event and they were kind of ragged and the equipment was all broken. It was like everything was like, ah, oh, this isn't how it should be. Just battle weary. They were battle weary. And a couple of the guys in this band were in a really big band when I first started that I used to go see. And I kind of went, well, wait a minute. I really respect these guys and I really like their music and they're opening for us and we haven't made it. And I'm about 29 or something at this point. I don't want to be that. And it wasn't a commentary on anything that they had done because they were very happy and, you know, they were doing what they wanted to do. But I just looked up and said, I don't think if I get into my thirties and I'm doing that, I'll feel satisfied. And that's when I really started looking to make a change into, you know, the, the traditional side of the business. And, I, and plus, I never wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to play music, write songs, have girls like it. I wanted to release some stuff and have people say, hey, I really like the lyrics in the second line or I like that chorus. I wanted that sort of stuff, but I never envisioned myself, you know, like Mick Jagger dancing around in my underwear, you know, on stage at the age of, you know, 60. And I think, if you're really going to go that route, you have to want to be a rock star. You want to want to have that life. And I didn't want to have that life. I might've wanted to have some of those accoutrements, which some of those come with success on the traditional side of the business. But I just, it wasn't, that wasn't my dream. It, uh, there's that moment, I think when I, I, I certainly faced it as well. I sat and I was like, if I'm going to keep doing this, it means because Australia is much bigger than America as far as distance between gigs like it means 10 hours in a van that smells like bong water right. to play to an empty room. And I'd already started working on radio at that point. And right. I was like, I had a live-in girlfriend, so I was getting regular sex, regular money. It's like, ah, sorry, boys. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it's, and, and, and it comes up at, at that point. You just kind of have to look at it. Plus the other thing to remember, and, and I speak at a lot of these seminars. I spoke at a acting intensive a couple of days ago that was filled with Australians that was out here. And I asked everybody, I want to say there were 20 people or something like that, 20 to 25 people. I said, raise your hand if you want to be a star. And about half the hands went up. And I said, okay, raise your hands if you just really want to do good work. And you know, everybody raised their hand. And I said, okay, raise your hands again if you want to be a star. And half and maybe one or two other people put their hands up. And I said, okay, the rest of you leave. And people kind of looked at me like, wait, what? I said, leave. Because if you're in Hollywood putting up with what you have to put up with in this town, you better want to be a star. Because if you just want to do good work, go back to wherever you're from, do community theater, write your own plays, go to the comedy club, perform a 20-minute you know, one-man show or, or one-woman show. But you're here to deal with this traffic in these conditions and people making you feel bad about what you do and everything else because you want to be a star. That's why you're here. So admit it. There's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, I, I want to do a talk show. I want to be the next Oprah Winfrey. There's nothing wrong as a songwriter to say, hey, I want to be the next Lennon and McCartney or the next Bob Dylan. There's nothing wrong as an actor to say, I want to be the next Paul Newman or I want to be the next Robert Redford or I want to be the next Daniel Day-Lewis. There's nothing wrong with it because someone's going to be or someone's going to be a version of that, not that anyone will be the next Bob Dylan, but someone's going to be a successful songwriter. So why not you? But if you don't believe it, get out get out because you're just clogging up all the roads. 
that's that must have been heavy for some of them to hear. Yeah, I think so. Well, it certainly made the Q and A portion of the, <laughs> of the evening a lot more interesting. But so, but, yeah. but I also figured, look, I figured the business is hard enough. You don't need to take these classes or these courses where people make you feel bad about what you're doing. You need people to build you up. Need you need people to help you uh, lift your esteem. You need people to make you feel good about what you're doing and what your choices are. And then you just got to go do the work. There's no committee that determines that Jennifer Lawrence is the next big star or Miley Cyrus is the next big star. People decide that. They decide that with their pocketbook and their wallet. I'm going to go and pay to see her in this movie. I'm not going to pay to see this movie. Pretty big focus test when it comes to that. When it comes to music, it's a little bit different because there's kind of a cabal that decides what gets on the air. And, you know, I had a a conversation yesterday with a a top programming um, man works in top 40 and he's great. He's smart. And we were listening to a new act and he said, I, I like this act. He goes, this is good. But did you ever consider kind of using these drum machines and, you know, doing this other stuff like what has done, like what Katy Perry and Gaga and Miley and um, some of these people are doing right now, like Taylor Swift just did. And I said, yeah, we considered it and we made the decision not to use them. And when they said, why? I said, well, there was a very specific reason why is because the artist will lose her individuality because she'll just sound like all of those. And he said, yeah, but that's what people like. And I said, right now. But I don't have a crystal ball. And what I have seen in going back in the past is the people that just did the trendy stuff, it doesn't last. The acts that last 20 plus years and more are the ones who have, there's some form of authenticity to what their music is. So I'll roll the dice that I can break this act through TV get enough uh, interest generated that you're going to have to play the act. And I'd rather do it with real instruments where real musicians play and real people come up and say, hey, I can identify with that and I can identify with those shows. That's how I grew up. And all of those acts are still playing. And a lot of these acts, you know, go back 15 years, they're not playing because they did what was trendy at the time in terms of the source of their music. I just hope they put their money away, those guys, because <laughs> they seem to make an enormous amount of money one time. Mm-hmm. And It's true. Yeah. Yeah, but look at it. Look at a guy like Billy Ray Cyrus. He sold what, 21, 22 million copies of Achy Breaky Heart. He can do anything he wants. If you have one hit like that, you know, that's the argument to say do what's trendy. Because if you have one big hit like that, then you can fund whatever you want to do later on. Yeah. And, some, and sometimes I think that's what you have to do. Or if you really don't have talent, if you're uh, one of these singers, and particularly if you're female, there's a ticking clock that works against you because of age and you know, discrimination and stuff watching the Grammys the other day. I love a lot of these young performers. You know, I, I love Katy Perry. I think she's great. I think she can sing and I think she's a great performer. But I'm watching Katy Perry and I'm watching Madonna. And I'm like, okay, Madonna's trying to do what Katy Perry or Kesha or Gaga or whatever are doing now. And it just didn't look right. It was like an old episode of, you know, Saloon Gals and Gunsmoke or something <laughs> where you're watching it. And you're just going, no, Madonna, don't. You know what? Class it up a little bit. You look yeah. like you should be on a show pony. Oh, crikey. Have you ever had to have those tough conversations with clients about maybe, you know, the whole wanting to work hard and being a star thing? Have you ever had to have that conversation with a client like this? All just the time. Not- we have those conversations all the time in terms of what it means. It, it's, it's an everyday conversation that you have with clients and it's different. It's a different conversation you have when you're talking to someone who's been in the business for some time versus somebody who's brand new. Um, it's different if you're talking to someone who's single and they don't have a family 
versus somebody who's has a family and a mortgage and you know certain things where they need to do things specifically mm. to pay those bills. You can take a lot of chances when you're young and you're unattached, and you should. And you should take chances and make mistakes and figure all those things out because no, no one has a crystal ball. No one in the business can say that person's guaranteed. You know, that person's guaranteed to be a star, and that person isn't. You can't predict a Justin Bieber. You can't predict the One Direction. You can't predict a, a, a lot of these things that happen. You just can't do it. So from from that point of view, um, you put it out and you see what people respond to, and then if it starts to take off, hopefully they will continue to listen to you. Because I've seen there have been times before where you're guiding someone with their career and they listen to a certain point and then they either get so rich or have so many people around them whose sole job is to you know, basically tell them how wonderful they are that you lose effectiveness at a certain point. And you see it. You know when it happens with a client. You know when it's like, okay, they're never going to be the same. It's gotten to a point where they don't care what our advice is. They just want me to tell them what they want to hear. Do you tap out at that point? You never want to, but sometimes you have to. I've done it a couple times, and then what happens more often than not is you'll either be killed by pillow talk or someone will say, you're paying him a lot of money. And they never focus on, you're making a lot of money. <laughs> it's, you're paying him a lot of money. I had it with one client once who basically said, I'm paying you, you know, seven years a year. And what are you doing for that? And I said, giving you the other 90%. <laughs> there, there, was a, there was a great quote that is attributed to Irving Azoff, who's you know, one of the classic all-time you know, greatest uh, managers in the business. And uh, what he's done with the Eagles and his other axes is unbelievable how good he is. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what he's accomplished. And I've only met him a couple of times. And he's, he's a character. But the quote, which a business manager said to me who was in business with him, said, uh, Irving said at one point, I can't stand the fact that these artists are keeping 85% of my money. <laughs> Don't know if it's true or not, but if it was, it just, it made me smile because I can understand from his point of view how he would feel about right. at it. So anyway. I've spent a bit of time around uh, the world that you live in uh, from before when I was with William Morris when I first met you sure. and then you know, later with my ex-wife walking around the buildings of CAA, which is like the Death Star, that building. It's crazy. Um, oh, come on. They've got a hot dog stand there. And yeah. Coffee bean. <laughs> it's, a, it's an exceptionally competitive environment. So I can't even imagine that you, 29, 30, up against kids who are out of college and hungry living in the West Hollywood Actors Ghetto. Just right. How did you go up against that? How did you even get in? Um, when I was 31, I, I, I think you know the story, is, is I um, – I was trying to get in the business and I was dating a girl who worked at the Universal Amphitheater. So three, four times a week, I'd go see her up there to see the concerts. I went to see her because I was dating her and I got to see free concerts. And what impressed me was I'd see people, mainly guys, funneling in and out and everybody was shaking their hand and hugging them and whatever. And I said, who are those guys? And she said, oh, those are the agents. This guy works at the William Morris Agency. This guy works at Triad. This person works at CAA. This person works at ICM, Premier, whatever, there were a bunch of them. And I was like, well, what, is, what does an agent do? And she told me what an agent did. And I thought, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. And her father had been an agent, uh, had been an agent and a producer. And uh, I said, okay, that's kind of interesting. So I decided that, and I was recording uh, at night and working at a swimming pool company in the day. Long story short, 
lost my job at the swimming pool company, took another temp job, hated it. Someone had said to me, you should really consider taking a job in the entertainment industry. You have the acumen that would enable you to be successful and you're a fan of this stuff and you should do it. I applied a bunch of places. I can't even remember all the places I applied. No one even called me back. Finally, get a call, um, took one interview and they laughed at me. They said, your hair is too long and you look like you're wearing your father's suit. So I said, I don't think you can dismiss me for that because I can get a haircut and I can change my clothes. So they gave me a typing test. And I remember the woman said, well, can you type? And I type anywhere from 55 to 75 words a minute because I'm a guitar player, you know, so your fingers are always going. Typed, they saw I could type. They said, why don't you come here and file, you know, and we'll find something for you. It was, it was a temp agency kind of thing. And the first day that I went in, first call that came in was from William Morris and I literally submitted myself and got the job. That's how I got in and I was 31 and most of the people were 22, 23 and um, I never looked at them as competition. I looked at them and I thought I've got eight years of life experience on you having toured, having done radio, having done a lot of this stuff. I think I have more of a sensitive side to relate to the artists and I have to believe my faith in myself that I'm smarter than you. And whether it shows or not, I will work harder. I will outwork you. The one thing I know I can do is I can outwork you. doesn't matter whether you went to Harvard and I went to UCSB or you went to Stanford or where. It doesn't matter. I don't care what the, edu- what the, the degree is. I got my degree. I was student body vice president. I ran a radio station. I know what it takes to get the work done. So I'm just going to outwork you. And that's what I set out to do. And that's literally what I did. And that's how I got my break. So that's your your version of, I want to be a star and I want to do good work. Correct. Yeah. And that's, that, that is one thing that people cannot take away from you in this city, I think, is you have one control in this city, I think, and that is how hard you work. Sure. Well, well and if you're an actor or you're a singer or you're a performer or you're an on-camera performer, you have to control how you look. I mean, you can control your diet, how you sleep, all Mm -hmm. those things. And and you and I have had those conversations in the past. You have control over that aspect of your life. And unfortunately, you're judged. People people will look at you and say, oh, he's a great looking guy, but his hair's too long. You know, Mm -hmm. you cut your hair and he's a great looking guy, but I like his hair long. You know, (laughs) but you you can control those things that you bring that you bring to bear and you can control your your work ethic. The other stuff, once you leave the room, they make decisions for all kinds of weird reasons. You know, I had, I had uh, someone, you know, you've done a few things here, so you know, but I had someone at one point tell me, nobody with a foreign accent will ever work on TV in America. <laughs> Two months later, we launched Weakest Link. And Robinson had the number one show in the U.S. And suddenly, you know, it, it was like Ellis Island. It's like everybody was coming in. And we, we were responsible for importing so much of the talent. Because what I looked at was... I said, well, wait a minute. She just proved you can work and you can have an accent. And I liked the fact that a lot of the people that were coming from uh, down on. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Or we're coming from the UK. Spoke English fluently. Yeah, you had an accent. But you also, you know, you're like 22 years of age and you had 10 years of TV and radio experience. Here, if you're 22, maybe you have a year. So I just thought, you have 10 times more experience, put you in the room and then let people decide. And, and we saw Piers Morgan, um, Simon Cowell, Kat Dealey, you know, all kinds of people that started working here. Nigel Lithgow, you know, Bruno Tonioli. All these people had accents just started working here on prime time in other areas, and it didn't matter anymore. And, and to me, it doesn't matter. Are you a good host if you're on TV or presenter, whatever, whatever it's called? Uh, are you likable? Do you know what you're doing? Can you speak English fluently? Do you have a great work ethic? Okay, you should be considered. What kills me is now in this competitive environment where they hire names for the sake of it being a name and they're just not a good host. You know, Josh Groban on Rising Star. Lost opportunity for everyone. And I'm a Josh Groban fan. Josh Groban doing like Regis and Kelly sort of stuff, he's great. Playing off someone, having a good time. Good guy. But to run a show... That's a live performance-related show. Super complex as well. There's a lot of housekeeping in that show. Yeah, I mean, you know what it's like to to do a show like Idol or Pop Stars or I packaged Pop Stars originally here. There's a lot of work to do those shows. It's hard. It's really hard to keep it all together. They make it look like you're not trying. And and <laughs> and to shoot all the stuff in the field that gets edited together. Yeah. And use utilize that skill set. And then come in 15 weeks later, and now you're doing a live show in the studio, you know, and, or in your case, you know, rowing a boat in front of uh, the um, auction house and, uh, you know, doing all that sort of stuff. Hold on just one second. Yeah. If I can. Hey, I'm, I'm doing an interview right now. Give me a couple minutes to finish this. Yeah. Yep. I'll, I'll ring you back as soon as I'm done. Yes, I do. Thanks. Sorry. You're right, mate. How much time have I got you for? We're okay. That was a call from Liverpool. So. Okay. All right. So, cool. so, um, but, but as you know, you know, you're doing a show where you're in the field and then you got to do a show where you're like rowing a boat in front of the Sydney Opera House and then you got to walk up the steps, walk in. It's pandemonium. You have to be perfect. You can't make a mistake because what everyone forgets is you're the only professional on stage. All these contestants aren't professionals. I always say the hardest show in the world to do is a pageant. If you're a guy going up and you're hosting a live pageant, what people don't realize is you have 50 to 100 people on stage with you at all times who are not professionals. They are amateurs. You're the only person who's a pro on that stage. And if you make a mistake, <laughs> it's a disaster. So you can't make a mistake in, in those shows. There was a, just to rewind for a moment, there was a moment in your career when you saw, you, you became this, mogul of non-scripted television, but there was a time when it didn't really exist, but you were one of the first people to see it. What were the, the telltale signs when you saw it coming down the pipeline? Producers who were poor driving Ferraris. 
that's when I looked up and went, wait a minute. These guys are driving Ferraris and Maseratis. This stuff's starting to pay. That was one of the signs. Um, I was different as, you know, as you know, I was at William Morris for almost 19 years. And then um, I left in a, you know, amidst a scandal, it turned into a big lawsuit when I voted against the merger. Um, and I was basically locked out and thrown out of the company. Uh, I came to Octagon and I signed a five-year deal, which I'm just finishing right now. And when I, um, when I was at William Morris, I made a decision that I didn't want to be pigeonholed. So I wanted to represent producers and put shows together. I wanted to represent the top directors who shoot the shows, because for me, that's the most exciting part of, of the business. And I think there are some of the most talented people that are out there. And I also wanted to represent talent. Most agents don't represent the spectrum. They pick one. So I would be equally as adept at guiding a Ryan Seacrest career as I was taking Phil Gurren and having him do a game show for GSN, three series simultaneously with the major networks. And the Gurren company, as people knew it, you know, was filling like three people in his office. You know, and it would expand and contract <clears throat> as it needed to. But then I could work with Dick Clark, who was, you know, the biggest host in, in the U.S., and work with Dick Clark Productions, who were doing the biggest award shows. I liked the ability of mixing it all up and then also taking an unknown that nobody knew here and saying, hey, this person's great and they deserve a shot, so let's see what we can do. And I used to call it when you, you would achieve something like that with a client and they would get a breakthrough, people would say, why do you do it? And I, uh, my old, old boss who hired me originally at William Morris had a phrase I loved. He called it psychic income. I do it because it makes me feel good, knowing I've helped them start to start to realize their dreams. So it um, once I saw people who beforehand were working paycheck to paycheck, buying bigger houses and driving nicer cars, and I think I probably saw the nicer cars first before I was invited to their homes, I went, okay, this business has taken off. The other thing I realized, where I realized the opportunity came in, was that... The scripted programming for a while was so bad in TV that people were phoning it in. And I went, networks aren't going to want to pay two to three million dollars an hour for this. So let's find out how to give them a show for six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars an hour that's going to get them a rating. So it was shows like you know Fear Factor, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, well, the first time I realized, oh wow. We got a tiger by the tail. I had been involved in, in setting up a show called um, "Who Wants to Be a Multi Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire," and we did it at Fox. And at the time, I represented uh, the producer and the director. We did the deal. There was a huge scandal behind it because of something that happened with the contestants. But I just saw this little thing. It was really the brainchild of Fox that they assigned to a couple of my producers. I watched this thing break, and suddenly it was in every magazine. It was in every story. Everyone was talking about it. And this was pre-digital age of Twitter and websites and all that stuff. And once I saw that and when one event can take off like that, I realized there was no turning back. So what about now? We're all, we seem to be on the, the dawn of a, a new era of broadcasting. I mean, we're doing it right now. There's no network involved in what you and I are doing. That's right. It's the freest I've ever felt doing this sort of stuff. And no, no, no notes. And it's getting even, well, the notes are there. The notes are in my download numbers. The right. notes are in the Twitter feedback. Those are exactly what you said before. I am now directly beholden to my audience. Right. And it feels fantastic. <laughs> it feels fantastic. But we're in, this, we're in this era where 
You've got people on YouTube making seven figures a year. You've got uh, podcasts like Marin doing $15,000 an episode and he does out twice. He's making 30 grand a week. Yeah. You know, so what do you see now? What do you see now that everyone has this ability to create content and put content out? Where do you see the opportunities? Well, they're everywhere. If, if you're a content creator, they're everywhere. And when you think about it, look at the equipment we have here. Yeah. Really doesn't cost that much. So anybody can do it. You just have to want to do it. You, I, I have a phrase. There's, there's a line, and I used it in, in a song I wrote, um, which is called Temporary People you know, Making Permanent Decisions. And I tell people, avoid the temporary people who make permanent decisions. There are, and, and I'm sure I didn't create it. I probably heard it somewhere, and it became my own. But um, I just look at it this way. There's so many people out there who just want to say no. You got to get past it. You got to get past it. That's your no. That's not my no. You know, you tell me I can't sing, I'll learn how to sing. You tell me I can't play, I'll learn how to play. You tell me I can't produce, I'll learn how to produce. And I'll figure out what I'm good at and I'll do it and I'll make partners. And, and, and I, I believe that in the future, it's not about the competition that's out there. It's about the partnerships you make. It's all about how you partner with people. So don't sit there. It's a competitive environment. It always is. It always has been. But I had this conversation with someone this morning and they asked me about a client and they asked me about someone else that kind of does what they do. And they said, would you meet with this person? And I said, yes. And they said, even though you have another person that kind of does what they do. And I said, well, they're in competition no matter what. And they're both good people. If I represented Pacino, I would sign De Niro. You know, you can represent a number of different people. You just have to be transparent with the conversations you have. No one's going to hire one of my clients because I tell them to. I'm going to give them the information. I'm going to help provide the opportunity. The buyer at the end of the day who is writing or the check will ultimately decide exactly what it is they want to do. Um, hold one second. Yeah, sure. This is even really good news for someone who really <laughs> I'll get out of your way. No, no, it's okay. Very it's, soon. It's, uh... You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I just. Well, let's. let's I, mean, I don't want you to divulge any details, but if I could. No, it's it's E. They're going to change their overall programming structure with their news, which means they're going to eliminate all those jumps. It's the sort of thing I can't say to the buyer wow, you're missing a huge opportunity in the marketplace. But unfortunately, you have accountants that are running a lot of these companies now. Yeah. And because they're running these companies, they're just looking at the bottom line. They don't care about the service they provide. So it's not always good news. We've talked a lot about good news in this uh, in a conversation today, but it's not always, not always good news, is it? How do you no, deal with that? No, and when you, um, well, I take aspirin right now. Um, <laughs> you... Uh, It's usually not good news. What people don't realize is there are 316 million Americans and everybody wants to be in the entertainment business. 75 million people from the UK, they all want to be working here. There are 40 million in Canada and Australia is like 28 million or something. 23. Like yeah, whatever the number is. Um, you know, we live in a world where Justin Bieber has more Twitter followers than the population of Australia. 
you know, or Australia and some of these companies, yeah. the countries combined, it's a, just a very different thing. And usually you have to call and tell people, hey, you're not getting what you want. And there's no rhyme or reason for it other than the economics of it or the number, the actual number that is there. That's work. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah. So um, oftentimes you just have to, you know, you spend most of the time telling people, hey, the news isn't good. And then you have to cushion the fall oftentimes. When you call someone and say the news is good, you got the job, you got everything you wanted, you get to enjoy it for about 30 seconds till you then have to tell all the people who didn't get the job. So I say celebrate everything. Celebrate all successes and realizes, realize that all of the non-successes are not permanent failure. And you just have to dust yourself up and get up and, and keep going. They feel so permanent in the moment because I'm not the only person. You've you've gone for the job. You're waiting for the call. You've already spent the first paycheck. Of course. <laughs> but you also have to look at it. How many shows can you tell me in Australia that have never been canceled? Oh, the news? That's it. <laughs> Maybe two morning shows. That's it. Yeah. Everything else gets canceled. Yeah. Same thing here. So you know once you start a journey on one of these things, at a certain point, it's going to end in tears somewhere. So if you didn't get it, have the tears right now and move on. And that's what you have to do, and that's how you have to look at it. It's not personal. There was, it's a great, it was a great story that defined everything for me. As I had a client years ago at William Morris, and she went in for a role on a very big drama, big hit drama here. And the casting director called me and said, hey, your client, man, they loved her. She did great. And they brought her back in and they said, excuse me, they said, your client did great. She really did great, John. We're bringing her back in, meeting the um, producers. And uh, it's her and two other girls. She walked into the room, gave the audition. She left. She called me. She said, I think I nailed it. I said, that's great. I'll let you know what happens. Casting director called me at the end of the day and said they made an offer to one of the other people. And I said, could you tell me what happened? She said, yeah, um, your client looked like the ex-wife of the executive producer. And as soon as he saw her, he said, she looks too much like my ex-wife and she didn't get it. That's nothing to do with her talent, her ability. I mean, you have no control over that. Yeah. And, and believe me, when I had to have that conversation, it's not a good conversation to have. Yeah. You know, because she says, what could I have done differently? Nothing. Yeah. And the people in the room said you were the best actress. So sometimes it's just not meant to be. You say that you've got to have these conversations. That means you've often got a very intimate relationship with, with the client. What does a good relationship with a client look like? Honesty. They can call you up and vent and tell you they're scared, but also understand that at a certain point, you got to stop with the complaining or the whining or whatever, and then we have to make a decision and move on. Um, conversely, I can call them and say, you don't need to call me three times today because every time I take your call, I'm not getting to the person I need to talk to to help you, you know, do what you need to do for your career. You just have to be honest with each other. And you, you truthfully, a really good relationship with the client is you have a partnership. The client has to believe that you are working for them at all times and they have to have faith in you and you have to have the leeway to do the work, but you can't do the work if you're always holding hands. 
And, and I, I'm really straightforward about that with clients. Love you to death. I can't hang out with you right now. I got to make these calls. I got work to do. And that's it. And never get into a guilt relationship. I mean, I mean, look at it this way. It's the exact same thing that you would have with a significant other. It's got to be trust. It's got to be honesty. There's got to be faith. It's got to be support. There's got to be comfort on both sides. And sometimes you got to man up. It's like, hey, you didn't get it. Put your big boy pants on. Go back to work. We've got work to do. What, what people don't understand is I take it hard too. I don't take rejection well. Somebody calls up and says, oh, your client is, oh, you're, you know, your client's hair is really thinning. Didn't they used to have longer hair? Client's looking kind of fat. You know, has he been drinking? You know, it's like his neck's really getting thick. Um, yeah, she should probably do something about those wrinkles on her forehead. We get those, those things happen all the time. And, and you want to say the, to the other person, like, hey, you know what? Go screw yourself. Like, you really want to get defensive, but you can't get defensive. You got to listen to it. You got to be constructive and then go back and figure out how to have the conversation with the client. And oftentimes, you can't have the conversation with the client because it's not accurate. Because the person on the other end of the line is lying to you. Because the truth is, they've seen 275 potential hosts for a show. I'm only going to pick one. And their boss went to college with the one they're going to pick. So that brings up an interesting point about relationships, about the personal relationships. Because like you said, there's no committee that chooses the Katy Perry. There's no, you know, selection process. It's not like the NFL draft pick where there's like a clear path. Correct. It's all, I like to think it's not only what you know, it's who knows what you know. And who you know and how you utilize what you know. No question. It's all about relationships. The reason why agents have jobs in this country, I can't speak for other countries because I don't live there. And even though I have some knowledge of how things work, I'm not an expert on how they work. I'm educated by the people who do what I do, who are managers, agents, representatives in other areas. But I can tell you here, if you're a sports star, you really don't need an agent. You really don't need a manager. You hire them because you do need someone to kind of get into the deals. But you can run really fast. You can jump really high. You can jump far, you can dunk, you can hit a baseball, you can field, you can run, you can block, you can smash a tennis ball, you can hit a golf ball 300 yards straight. There are God-given skills you have, which you have worked hard to perfect. And for a certain period in your life, you are able to do that. And it is a quantified period. At a certain point, you just can't do it anymore. So as long as you can do it, you're going to make money, you're going to do it, and you don't need the quote-unquote middleman or middlewoman help you do those things. We can help you figure some stuff out and provide a service, but I can't make you jump any higher or run any faster or any of that stuff, swim swim any better, like any of those. You have those abilities and we help you in the ways we can. On the entertainment side, someone's got to open the door for you. Someone has to book the gig. Someone has to convince someone that you and your 20 drunk friends are going to outdraw the other band and their 19 drunk friends. You've got to buy equipment. You got to make demos. You got to take pictures. You got to go to acting class. Uh, for you, they're going to tell you, Osher, go um, uh, go to a dialect class because you got to get rid of your accent. Then someone's going to walk in and say, Wait a minute, I've seen you before and seen your tape. You're great. How come you don't have an accent? I thought you were going to have an accent. I mean, there's all this craziness. That's happened. <laughs> I know. I, I know. I think I got the feedback. So there's all this craziness. And there's no standard set of rules in our business. 
you know, in, in baseball, if you can throw a baseball into the strike zone at 100 miles an hour, you will play Major League Baseball. Short of violating some drug policy or some criminal thing where they throw you out, you throw a baseball 100 miles an hour and you can do that 10 times a day, every day, okay, you're a closer. You've got a career for as long as you can do that. If you have those same talents on the broadcasting side or whatever, there's no guarantee you're going to get a job or the job that you want. So we serve a function in terms of being out there all day long so you can continue to perfect those, those techniques. So it, it's just, it, it's a very different business. Mm. And it's very different in terms of how those relationships are. And you just have to have relationships. At, at the end of the day, I never want to do a deal with someone that doesn't work. Because the next time I come in, oh yeah, you did that thing with us and it didn't work. I never want someone to hire one of my clients and have the client not work. Oh, Ferreter gave us so-and-so and they didn't work. I want it all to work. You know what? If, if everything works and all my clients are working, my golf game and tennis game get better. Is that psychic income? Psychic income. Makes you swing a, a cleaner shot. That's right. Right. And you feel better about it. Yeah. And then you can always go and you know manage, which is really what we do, is we manage relationships, manage careers, and in some cases manage expectations. And that's a big part of it. But you have to have the relationships and you have to have people tell you the truth. Yeah. Hey, John, uh, your client, I remember I had a client that did a very big show. The show went away and uh, I put the client up for something else. And a buyer called me and said, your client is not gonna get hired into a big show for a year. And I said, why? I said, because he's great, but the show didn't work. So he's gonna have to sit in the timeout seat even though it wasn't his fault. So you've got to tread water with him for a year. That was a very hard conversation to have with the client who then came back, got a bigger show about a year later. But the entertainment business had basically said, okay, we gave you a shot. Didn't really work, wasn't your fault, so we'll give you a shot again, but let's just breathe for a little bit. You're on the bench for a bit, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Come back with a different haircut. And that's a, and that's a hard conversation to yeah. have. Yeah, I've had that one too. Yeah. Uh, well, I know you've got to get out of here, so I'll, two more questions. Uh, what are you most excited about uh, as we look forward into this this future where I can get content whenever I want, wherever I want, when scripted content's so strong, when the digital distribution, when Sony PlayStation is funding drama series yeah. on their platform. This is exciting times. I'm excited for all of it. I mean, I'm excited at what we're about to discover. I think that the world's going to change dramatically. And people, if you let people know it's out there and it's good, they'll find it. And, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about discovering it as a fan. I'm discovering about participating in it as a partner, as a representative, or as a producer. And I'm really excited about music. I'm really excited. I think we're coming to a point where those acts that can actually sing and perform live are going to bust through in a big way. I think there's an audience out there that's tired of the spoon-fed you know, stuff. And I think they're, gonna, they're not going to reject it. They're just going to embrace that that is real. Does it come down to the authenticity? That, yeah. authentic, that authentic connection? The words are authentic, organic, and real. You know, so I'll give you a perfect example. I was watching the Grammys the other night. So you have this great moment that's two and a half hours into the show. Paul McCartney with Kanye with Rihanna. And a lot of people are waiting for it, okay? So Paul McCartney comes out, plays. And anytime you can see Paul McCartney, he's a Beatle. 
So it's fantastic. Paul McCartney's out there. I just want to point out there's a photo of you jamming with Paul McCartney above your desk. Yeah. Which is which is a, <laughs> that's a pretty awesome thing. Yeah, which is a which is a great thing. Um, but Paul comes out, plays, his mic isn't on. Okay. At the Grammy. Yeah. So mistake by a sound guy, whatever, but he's okay. You know, he's like singing a harmony part with him. Rihanna's singing, it's obviously auto-tune. Kanye's singing, it's obviously auto-tune. Whether you love Kanye, hate him, whatever, you know, he's a He's a very um, polarizing guy and he's a very flamboyant guy, but he's a great performer. You know, he's a star and um, he's a music star. Rihanna's a music star. And I'm watching this stuff and I'm thinking, song's okay at best. They've kind of marginalized Paul. And, but you still get to see these people together and you see where kind of old school music and new school come together. Now, if they had the talent, I would have loved to have seen them come out and do like McCartney's Goodnight Tonight and do some rousing dance version of that, place would have gone crazy. And younger people would have went, oh, I kind of understand how McCartney bridged his music going from the Beatles into a solo, and I kind of see how all this stuff fits. But, you know, they miss opportunities like that. And I think we need to seize those, those types of opportunities. I like it when you see collaborations and partnerships that you don't, don't expect. Mm. I think that's great. I mean, think about it. Elvis Presley... Uh, died in 1977. He was 42. So that's 37 years ago. So he'd be 79 right now. Something like that. 79, 79 or 80 this year. So think about that. If Elvis Presley was alive in his 70s, he'd still be playing. Buddy Holly was, I think, 22 when he died in 59. So Buddy Holly would be like 75 now. I think they, it was just his birthday um, a couple days ago. So Buddy Holly would be 75. He'd still be playing. We would have seen like Buddy Holly and Garth Brooks, you know, playing together or Elvis Presley with uh, Sam Smith. Like, I like that sort of stuff. I like where you see the continuity. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you think about it in terms of the entertainment business, how old is the entertainment business? Really? The William Morris Agency, which no longer exists. It's now WME. It's a different company. But that was started in 1898, and that was the first talent agency. Yeah, like Victorian Hippodrome era, that kind yeah. of thing. So yeah. think about it. That's where 2015, the entertainment business is 117 years old for all intents and purposes. Older than the automobile. Older than the airplane. So actually think about this stuff. When we actually kind of think about it, it's a baby. So all this stuff that's going to start happening now is really exciting. Mm-hmm. We just have to let it happen and participate in it as much as we can. So just the last thing before I let you go and get out of your very busy day. Not everyone's uh, an entertainment, you know, wanting want somebody to be the part of the entertainment industry listening, but everyone listening, surely either they're an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, they're inside their own company. They want to they transform what they're doing. They want to level up what they're doing. What, what would you share with them? About what they're doing? Yeah, even if it's like within their own family. They want to make their family work better. They want to, you know, uh, make their work life better. They were Like, what would you share? You told about when we sat down at first, you oh. said, if you're going to dream, dream bigger. Well, no, I, I said, well, what I said was, if you have your dream job, dream bigger. Oh, that's right. Um, I think you should dream as big as you possibly can. Do not let temporary people make permanent decisions in your life. Um there's that great phrase, people come into your life for a reason, a season, or life. I believe that's true. Uh, what we do is fleeting. Um, don't take yourself so seriously. Have fun. 
with what you're doing. At the end of the day, your family and friends are really the only thing that matter. People are your friends because they want to be your friends. It's not a reciprocal arrangement. Oh, you did this, so I'm not going to be your friend. You're someone's friend because you want to be their friend, and you need your friends to get through hard times, as we both know. You've had battles. You know, I've had battles. I, I died, you know, clinically. I flatlined uh, a few years ago. And when you're laying in a hospital bed and you're recovering, you know who comes to see you. You know who the well-wishers are, and you know who's really there for you. And the rest of the stuff, there are a lot of people who are friendly. It's okay to have friendly people around you, but know who your friends are and be their friends. Uh, and do it because you want to do it. Do the things you do because you want to do them. And also understand at a certain point, and I've realized this, it's way more important to do right than to be right. You know, and there are certain things in the past I was, you know, potentially kind of how, how you may have been and other, other young bucks. We always wanted to be right. It was our way or the highway and it was all this other stuff. And it just doesn't matter. Do right. You don't have to be right. Just do right. And you know what? They're, they're two really important words. And I've been watching all this. Um, I don't know when this will get out, but all the stuff with Brian Williams from NBC. You know, he embellished a story and everybody wants his hat. Everybody has embellished a story. No human can stand up to the scrutiny if you go through every aspect of their life. There was one, and he lived and died over 2,000 years ago, and he had a bad relationship with his mom, okay? And that's it. So you've got it. There are two words that are really important in the English language. One is acceptance, and one is forgiveness. You don't have to forget if someone did something, and you can go, well, I do remember you did this whatever at one point, but you got to forgive. And then the second thing is you have to accept. People are going to do things that you don't want to do. They're going to do things in a way that isn't how you would do it. But you have to accept that that's their way. And if you can do that and you can hold your head high and you can leave everything you do with your integrity intact, you're going to be a better person. You're going to have a happier life and you'll be more successful at anything you do. Because people want to be in business with and they want to associate with people that they believe are happy and have it together. You just look at them and you go, wow, I want to do more stuff with him or with her because I think they've got their stuff together. And you know what? If you drink at some point, you've had too much to drink. If you do drugs at some point, you've done too much. If you smoke at some point, you've done too much. If your drug of choice is caffeine, you know, you've had too much at some point. Everyone is guilty of being human. And you have to, you know, hopefully when you're young, make those mistakes so that you can come out of it and go, yeah, I know what it's like to be that guy and I didn't like it or I liked it so much that I wasn't responsible with the things I did and there are um, consequences for all of our actions and there's a price that you pay. And at a certain point, you go, wait, I can live a better life. I can live a life that's more whole without some of these things. And whether it's greed or avarice or all of these different things that feed in because people try to feed into this stuff. At a certain point, you just go, look, I think it's going to be more important to do right than to be right. So let's just do right. And then whatever comes out of that, that'll be what it'll be. And that's where, you know, I try to get to. I have a, a sign I see every day when I leave my house. And I look at the sign every day and I smile. And I go, okay, I'm ready for the day. And it's a sign I found in a little garden shop. And it says, my goal in life is to be the person my dog thinks I am. <laughs> 
John, I can't thank you enough for this. Anytime. Judging by how many times your phone's buzzed, you've got 27 calls to return. It's okay. <laughs> I'm going to take your photo real quick and then I'll get out of your yeah, office. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Thanks. And that, my friends, was John Ferreter. You can find him on Twitter at Ferret Morg, F-E-R-R-E-T-M-O-R-G-U-E. Find him on Twitter. He's quite active on Twitter. By all means, engage him. Let him know you heard him here. He'll probably chat with you. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any further thoughts about what you heard today, you can always email me, sandosheremail at gmail.com. Find me on osherginsberg.com is where you can see all of the episodes. Episode 80. We're at episode 80, folks. What are we going to do for episode 100? Crikey. Look, have a great week. Um, What am I doing this week? I'm flat out this week. Uh, We're shooting every day, which is fun. I said to my girlfriend last night, I really, I just like doing good work, like John was saying. I just like doing good work. I'm really grateful, and, and I count doing this show as doing that. You know, um, but I'm really grateful that I get a chance to do this, and so many people enjoy it. Um, I've said many times I don't make any money doing this. I don't. In fact, it costs me money, but I love doing it, and it doesn't matter because what this show has brought me has paid me back hundredfold easily a hundredfold by doing this podcast and I couldn't do this podcast if it weren't for you because if nobody listened I wouldn't make it so many people listen I make it every week and I love to so I guess the one thing that really stuck with me from John's conversation there which I absolutely love is when he's talking about the songwriter someone's going to be the next big songwriter why shouldn't it be you someone's going to create the next new massive social media platform why shouldn't it be you someone's going to create the next new revolution in health and fitness in australia why shouldn't it be you someone's going to create the next revolution in education why shouldn't it be you why shouldn't it be you that's pretty much it can't thank that guy enough thanks for listening have a fantastic week between now and i talk to you next sleep well and dream of beautiful things Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.